Okay, thank you very much, worship team. Uh, Mark, appreciate that very much. If you would turn to John chapter 1, we want to continue talking about love. We've been spending some time in 1 Corinthians 13, but we're going to talk about love this morning in light of the Christmas story, in light of the realities that we find in 1 John, excuse me, John chapter 1, um, and the other gospels as well. The season is a beautiful season. We like to go look at lights and Uh, We decorate and we do all kinds of things to beautify our homes and beautify our neighborhoods. And the reason is because of what Christmas is all about. And hopefully we'll see that in fresh and new ways this morning. Um, It's the beauty of the love of God for sinners that we want to talk about today. Um, There is a movie that many of you have probably seen um, called It's a Wonderful Life. And the interesting thing about that movie is the basic message is George Bailey um, doesn't really appreciate his impact on different people. And so this uh, angel is sent to help him understand the reality that all of us make a difference in each other's lives. And so the idea of the the movie is that it's a wonderful life in the sense that as uh, Clarence Oddbody, the angel would say, each man's life touches so many other lives when he isn't around he leaves an awful hole doesn't he and somebody commented on that and said our lives are full of wonder it seems by the mere fact of our interconnectedness which there's a lot of truth in that god definitely uses people and um, the network of people in our lives uh, is an amazing thing when we think about how god has used different people in various ways and yet Christmas is about a different kind of connection or interconnectedness, and that's the interconnectedness between God and man. And that that life is truly a wonderful life, a life full of wonder. And that's what we see in John chapter 1, is that we see that God became a man. And in becoming a man, uh, he filled uh, this world with a wonder that we celebrate at Christmas time. Um, The angel in It's a Wonderful Life is called Clarence Oddbody, which is odd to me. I'm not sure why the angel was named that. But in the incarnation, we truly have an odd body, not in a negative sense, but in a very positive sense. We have a body that is filled with the fullness of God an unusual body, a man who is actually fully God. When we think about the wonder of Christmas, we oftentimes think about, I wonder what I'm going to buy somebody, or I wonder what I'm going to get, or those kind of wonders. How am I going to pay for all this? I wonder, um, as I'm always talking about how stressful um, Christmas can be in various ways. But the real wonder of Christmas is about what really happened and why it happened. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that if you think about the issue of miracles, the central miracle and the grand miracle of all miracles is the incarnation when when God became a man. That every miracle leading up to that and every miracle actually flows from that. That if there wasn't the incarnation, we wouldn't have all the other great uh, blessings and miracles of God. 
J.I. Packer, and I've put this in your notes, said, the really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man, that the second person of the Godhead became the second man, determining human destiny, and that he took humanity without loss of deity. He did not stop being God when he became man, and he did not stop being truly man when God joined himself to humanity. Well, that's what John is talking about here in John chapter 1. So let's read together the first 18 verses of John 1 again this morning. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is the word of God. In the first five verses, basically John says, he talks about this word who is light. And that this light and this word is God himself. Was God from the very beginning, was with God at the very beginning, and was the means through which everything was created. The next verses talk about the fact that John the Baptist was not the light, but he testified. He pointed to Jesus as the light. The next verses talk about the fact that the light comes into the world, ultimately talking about Jesus, the God-man, and he came into the world and the world didn't know him, didn't recognize him, didn't say, wow, that's the one who created us. He came to his own, the Jewish people, and they did not receive him. But some did, and that's what we want to focus on is verse 12. Uh, After that, it talks about the light revealing God, because no one has seen God except in the person of Jesus, because Jesus came to reveal the Father, he said. And then we didn't read the rest of the chapter, but if you go on, And we'll talk about the rest of the chapter next week and the following week. But it highlights the fact that this word that took on human flesh was a lamb and he was the Lord. 
He is the Lamb. He is the Lord. Well, there's three things that I want to talk about over the next three weeks, three encouragements. The one that we'll focus on today is that we don't want to forget the name in the manger. Secondly, we don't want to forget that receiving is believing. And thirdly, we don't want to forget to act like a child. And that's all based on verse 12, which is what we're going to focus on for the next three uh, Sundays. Verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Jan showed me something the other day, a picture of a, a baby in a, a little bassinet. And on the uh, outside of the bassinet, uh, it said name with a question mark. And it was actually pointing to the manger. It was in the context of Christmas. And so the idea was, what is the name on the manger? If someone were to ask you that, what would you say? Well, all of us would probably be able to say, well, obviously it's Jesus. We know the name on the manger. But do we really know the name on the manger? Do we really know the name in the manger? Because the Bible says that we are called to believe in his name. Uh, one of the fun things about having kids is coming up with names for them. Before Emily was born, uh, I joked about the fact that uh, her name was going to be Sparky. And so we look forward to Sparky being born. Obviously, we didn't go with Sparky after the fact. But naming babies is a fun thing, although it can be a very stressful thing at times, too. But the reason why we pick certain names is always fascinating to me. Um, it's usually more than we just need to name this baby so we don't keep saying, hey, you. It has to be more than that, right? But sometimes it's simply a matter of we like the sound of this name. For others, it's we like the meaning of the name. This name means this. This name has some kind of significance. And I don't know about you if you've ever thought about your name and what it means and thought about whether or not your name actually reflects the kind of person you are. Uh, we've thought about that with regard to our kids, and at times we can say, yeah, I think we see some of that person's name in them. They, they reflect that in their character. And that's exactly what the Bible typically is talking about when it's talking about the name of someone. That it's not talking about just simply distinguishing them from somebody else by a label. It's actually talking about their character. And that's why you can see in the story of David and Abigail, and Abigail's married to Nabal, and Nabal upsets David, and David's about to kill him, and Abigail stops David and says, don't do it, and she says uh, to David, please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Nabal means folly or fool, and Abigail, his wife, said, and that's what he is. He's a fool. He's filled with folly. And so when we think about what's being said here, when it says, as many as received him, believed in his name. They didn't just know that he was named Jesus, but they understood his character. And they understood what it meant to believe that that was who he is and what he is. 
and what it meant for them that he was what he is and who he is. And so I want to talk about that a little bit, think a little bit about what's behind the idea of believing in the name uh, this morning. Um, the first of all, I just want to highlight what it says later on in the book of John. In John eight fifty eight, Jesus is interacting with uh, religious leaders, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He doesn't say, before Abraham was born, I was. John the Baptist said that. He said, before I existed, Jesus existed. But Jesus doesn't say exactly what John said in John 1. He says something a little different. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, what was the significance of that? Well, they knew exactly what he said. They knew what he meant. He was referring to the way God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. God comes to Moses and says, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses says, what if Israel, your own people, say, who are you to lead us out? And who is this God who told you to come lead us out? What is his name? And God told Moses to tell them, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am is where we get or we translate or we get the idea of the name Yahweh, which can also be referred to as Jehovah, King James Version and that kind of thing. It's the idea of uh, the name of God that's related to other things in Scripture. And so uh, when I was probably in college, I came across a prayer aid called the 2959 plan by Peter Lord. And in that 2959 plan, it was a way to pray for 30 minutes. And one of the things he had in that program was the names of Jehovah or Yahweh. And he listed the names and said, when you're praying, one of the things you can do during your prayer time is praise and thank God for his name. And so what I want to do is, in light of what Jesus said about himself, my name is I am. I want us to think a little bit about what the Old Testament says about God as the great I am. And the basic idea of I am who I am or when God says I am has sent me to you, it's very hard to understand all that it means because it basically is meant to describe God. But most theologians would say it has something to do with self-existence. It has something to do with the idea that God has always been, he always will be, that he's the source of everything. And then if you boil it down very practically, it's God saying, I am all you need and I am all you desire. That's basically the implication, the practical implication of Yahweh or Jehovah. I am everything you could ever need, everything you could ever desire. Whatever it is you need or desire, I'm it. I am what you're looking for. And so as you look at um, different ways in which that's talked about in the Old Testament, let that inform us what it means to believe in the name of Jesus. Because he said, I came to reveal the Father. I came to reveal the Old Testament God that you haven't really known yet. You haven't really understood yet. And so one of the names 
that we find in the Old Testament is found in Exodus 17. And that name is Jehovah Nissi, the Lord my banner. Um, it's actually in the context of Israel fighting Amalek. And it's a story where Aaron and her are, are holding up uh, Moses' hands as he holds up the rod of God. And as long as his arms are held up, Israel defeats Amalek. But whenever he gets tired and he drops his arms, they start losing. And so they hold up his hands until Israel defeats Amalek. And at, in that story, uh, it says in Exodus 17:15, Moses built an altar after they won the battle and named it, The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my rallying, rallying place or my victory. He's the one who gives me victory. What I want to do is try to just ask some questions. When you think about the name Jehovah or Yahweh, if it really means I am everything you need and, and desire, would it make a difference if you really and always believe that? Would it make a difference if you really believe that God was able to be all that you need and desire? Then in light of Jehovah Nissi and the idea of him being our victory, would it make a difference if you really and always believe that God was able to overcome all the enemies in your life, that he was truly Jehovah Nissi, the Lord, your banner or victory. You can look in Psalm 23. The very first uh, verse in Psalm 23 is actually a name. The Lord is my shepherd is Jehovah Rohi. Um, it's a name of God. And in that psalm, it talks about the fact that surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, will pursue me, will, will chase me and run me down all of my life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Some people interpret that as not only shepherd, but friend. Um, would it make a difference if you really... And always believe that God is always guiding you to what will nourish you and give you rest. And he's always doing that. He is your shepherd. In Exodus 15, it talks about Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, my healer. The context of that is where the Israelites are in the wilderness. They've just come out of Egypt. They come to Marah and the waters are bitter. They can't drink the water. What? God tells Moses to do is, he says, take a tree and throw it in the water. He does that and the waters become sweet. The waters are healed. And so it says in Exodus 15, and he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians for I, the Lord, am your healer. Would it make a difference if you really and always believed that God was able to heal whenever, whatever needed to be healed in your life, whether it was water or your heart or your spirit or your body or your emotions or whatever it might be? Would it make a difference if you trusted him to be your healer? And I, in Ezekiel... We actually find in chapter 48 uh, the name Jehovah Shema, which means the Lord is there. 
which is interesting because the end of Ezekiel, you have this elaborate description of this temple and this city and all the different kinds of worship that's going to take place. But the very last verse of Ezekiel says, the city shall be 18,000 cubits round about. And the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. What's the implication of that? Well, the whole picture at the end of Ezekiel is one of restoration. That God is going to restore the ruins. He's going to restore the temple worship. He's going to restore Jerusalem. It's going to be a new temple, new Jerusalem. It's actually a picture of the gospel and what God was going to do through Christ. And so you basically have the question that's presented to us in that name. Would it make a difference if you really and always believed that God was present with you to exercise his power to restore the ruins in your life? To do for you what needs to be done uh, to take care of the things that you've messed up. <laughs> the reality is uh, Israel caused all of that. It was their sin and rebellion against God and God was going to restore them. And so it's a great encouragement to God's people when God said, I'm here and like that uh, shirt that I've seen Dan wear, <clears throat> I'm here to help. <laughs> That's what God is saying, Jehovah Shema. In Jeremiah 23, we have another name of God, which is Jehovah Tassid Canoe, which is the Lord my righteousness. And the context there is the context of God saying, I'm going to raise up a righteous branch. I'm going to raise up a righteous branch for you. And he says, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. The righteous branch will be our righteousness. And so the question is, would it make a difference if you really and always believe that God was able to give you a record of perfect righteousness that satisfied all his expectations for you? It's very easy to be overwhelmed with expectations people's expectations, your own expectations, certainly if you believe God has expectations. What if God says, my son has fulfilled those expectations? Would it make a difference if you really believe that? There's also another name that we find in the Old Testament, which is Jehovah Mikadesh, the Lord, my sanctifier. In Leviticus 27 and 8, I don't think I put verse 8 in your notes. It says, you shall keep my... Actually, verse 7 says, You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. The context there is God saying, Do not give your children to Molech. Do not um, go to mediums and practice harlotry. It's the idea of, uh, or in the context of idolatry. Don't worship other things. I sanctify you. I set you apart to worship me. I set you apart to find your satisfaction, your help, and your happiness in me. In fact, I set you apart to make you like me. I sanctify you. I am your sanctifier. 
Would it make a difference if you really and always believed that God was able to cause you to live and to love in ways that you can't imagine now? In various relationships and various circumstances. Another name in the Old Testament is Jehovah Shalom. The Lord, my peace. In Judges chapter 6, you have the calling of Gideon. Gideon's beaten wheat in a wine um, vat in the ground. And he's hiding from the Midianites. And, and God calls him. Tells him to lead uh, the people uh, to fight the Midianites. And Gideon says, how do I know that you know, you're really going to be with me? And, and the angel of the Lord, which is actually more than likely a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus, works a miracle, and Gideon says, oh no, I've seen the angel of the Lord, I'm going to die. And the response is, the angel of the Lord says, no, you shall not die. And it says in verse 24, then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it is still in Oprah of the Abizrites. The idea there is the question of would it make a difference if you really and always believed that God was able to give you a profound peace of heart and mind that transcends any circumstances and any guilt on your worst day? I think it would. And that's my argument. Which brings me to the last two. Jehovah Sabaoth the Lord of hosts. Um, This is mentioned in the Bible many, many times. But one place it's mentioned is when David is fighting Goliath. And he says to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. And that's basically the idea of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And so the question is, would it make a difference if you really and always believed that God was able to make sure that those who are with you are much greater than those who are against you? Finally, the last name that we see in the Old Testament related to Jehovah or Yahweh is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my provider. This is especially important in light of Christmas and why Jesus came. But it's related to story In Genesis chapter 22, where God tells Abraham to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And he's about to kill Isaac, and God stops him. And he shows him a ram caught in a thicket. And it says that Abraham took that ram and he sacrificed it in place of his son Isaac. And it says, Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, Jehovah-Jireh certainly means that whatever we need, God will provide. But in the context, it means especially he will provide the Savior we need. And he will provide it where? In the mount more than likely the very place that Jesus was crucified was where Abraham was called to sacrifice his son. It was a foreshadowing of what Christ would do for us, that God provided himself 
in our place in the person of Jesus. So what I'm trying to do is just encourage us to think about the fact that when we think about the name on the manger, the name on the manger is I am. I am all you need and all you desire. I am truly everything that your heart is longing for and looking for. That's the name on the manger. But there is more that we can say about that. Um, At the beginning of John chapter 1, it talks about uh, Jesus in terms of the idea of the word. And the question is, what does that mean? means, well, in Greek is logos. Um, And there's all kinds of speculation about what it actually means, just like Yahweh in the Old Testament. But basically, a word, what does a word do? It reveals to you, a spoken word at least, or a written word, reveals to you what's in my mind. It reveals what's unseen. So when we think about Jesus being born, what's going on there? It's God revealing what is unseen. Because it says in verse 18, No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God... The little baby in the manger has explained him or exegeted him or revealed him. So my words reveal what's unseen. My thoughts, my heart, my desires, my passions, my my purposes. And that's what we find taking place in Jesus. He is the divine word. Another name on the manger is the word. And that word is light because it brings to light what God is really like. It brings to light the heart of God. And the question is whether or not um, we see in the revelation of this light, the revelation of this word, a name that is truly wonderful. There's a story in the Old Testament about Samson's parents when they were being told about what Samson was going to do. And they're being talked to by the angel of the Lord. And they ask the angel of the Lord, what is your name? And the angel of the Lord replies, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Well, in Isaiah 9, it says, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful. Some translations separate that from counselor and make it a fifth name. Others combine it and say wonderful counselor. Either way, it highlights the wonderful name of Jesus. And that's what's really going on in verse 14 when it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does grace and truth mean? It's the idea of beauty. It's the idea of wonder, full of grace and truth. If you read certain theologians like Jonathan Edwards and others, they would say God's glory is his beauty and his beauty is his love. And so when it talks about grace and truth, it's really talking about uh, the love of God and the beauty of God in that respect. In fact, Someone has commented on Jonathan Edwards who talked about um, seeing God and, and when we really see God, we see the beauty of God and that those who see God in his beauty have a kind of sixth sense. 
um, a sense of the beauty, glory, and love of God. Um, this person who's talking about, I was reading this person who's talking about Edwards and his view about the beauty of God and that kind of thing. He makes this comment that is really, really interesting and very important in light of what we're talking about today. He says, God does not drive us by duty, but draws us by beauty, not by fear, but by irresistible attraction. It is like the way the most beautiful music and words of art draw us closer and closer. He's highlighting the fact that the real thing that draws us is the beauty of God, that he's full of grace and glory. We see the grace and glory, grace being undeserved favor for sinners, love for those who don't deserve it. Truth is meaning that this grace actually reveals God as he truly is. We see the beauty of God. And, and Jonathan Edwards would say an important part of conversion is that we actually begin to see the beauty of God. We see Jesus, and in Jesus we see someone who's full of grace and glory. We see the beauty of God. Um, Jonathan Edwards would talk about the fact that the reason why God has made flowers and rivers and mountains and beautiful things is so that we would get a taste of his beauty. He said, the beauties, and especially of the beauty of Jesus, he says, the beauties of nature are really emanations or shadows of the excellencies of the Son of God. So that when we are delighted with flowery meadows and gentle breezes of wind, we may consider that we see only the emanations of the sweet benevolence or love of Jesus Christ. When we behold the flagrant, fragrant rose and lily, we see his love and purity. So the green trees and fields and singing of birds are the emanations of his infinite joy and happiness. The easiness and naturalness of trees and vines are shadows of his beauty and loveliness. The crystal rivers and murmuring streams are the footsteps of his favor, grace, and beauty. He's basically saying creation was designed to show us the beauty of God. How much more Jesus Christ himself. God in the flesh was meant to show us the beauty of God. And it's the beauty of God that actually causes us to trust him. In Psalm 9, 10, it says, Those who know your name will put their trust in you. That's why I said earlier, what name would you put on the manger? And do you really know the name that's in the manger, the person that's in the manger? Because if you really know that person, you will trust that person. You would say, why trust anybody else? Like Peter would say, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. In Psalm 34, it says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let's exalt his name together. Jesus said in John 17 in the great high priestly prayer, I have made your name known to them, speaking of the, the Father's name. And he did it, he says, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them. He says, I've made your name known so they will love you and love me. The implication being, if you really see the beauty of God, full of grace and truth, you can't help but love him. The beauty isn't 
overwhelming attraction to our hearts. So the name of Jesus is a name that we don't want to forget during this Christmas time. When, when I think about the song, Mary, Did You Know? Uh, over and over it says, Mary pondered all these things in her heart. What was she pondering? I think she was wondering, uh, who is this baby? What is this baby? Now we know that to some degree she understood what was happening. But I don't believe she fully understood what was happening. I mean, obviously, to some degree, she knew that this baby was had something to do with God fulfilling his promises to Israel, the sin to Savior, and that she was highly favored and highly blessed to have this baby. But as you read through the story, you realize she still didn't fully understand all that was going on. Even in the ministry of Jesus, she and Jesus' brothers would come and say, uh, you're talking like a crazy person. You need to come home. They didn't fully understand, but later on they did. She came to fully understand the reality that um, Jesus was God in the flesh. Mary, did you know? Did you know that your baby boy was has walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. Did she know that at then? I don't think she did. She knew this baby was special, but she didn't know how special. And the reality is, even as believers, we know Jesus is special, but do we really know how special he really is to us and for us? It's actually a process of really getting to know our God and our Savior. We become to know more and more just how special he truly is. The last thing I just want to touch on is, in one sense you could say the name on the manger is I am. The name on the manger is the Word who reveals this wonderful God, this beautiful God. You can also say the name on the manger is love. And I'll explain why. It says in 1 John, obviously John wrote the Gospel as well as 1 John, and he talks about it at the very beginning of the book of 1 John. We have our hands have handled and our eyes have seen uh, this word. And he goes on to say, uh, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And twice in that chapter he says, God is love. So when we read in First uh, John 1.14, he's full of grace and truth. We need to understand that in light of Exodus 34 as well as 1 John, where it says, God reveals himself to Moses and says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Full of grace is abounding in loving kindness. Toward who? Toward people who don't deserve it. Toward sinners. Toward those who do not love him. That's the picture That's the beauty of God, is that God loves those who don't even love him. And he is gracious to them. Jan and I saw a movie earlier last week called The Shift. Uh, It's an interesting movie. I'm not going to tell you much about it other than that there's a character in the movie who is a a devil-like character. And the movie is loosely related to the book of Job. And so this character 
is talking to this guy in the movie and basically saying, God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. That's why all this bad stuff is, stuff is happening to you, which is what was going on in the book of Job as well. And the reality is that is the great temptation from the very beginning of time with Adam and Eve in the garden. You've got God saying, I love you. You can trust me. And Satan come along saying, God doesn't love you and you can't trust him. And you've got this song that we referenced last Christmas time. Um, It's a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. It's a poem called Christmas Bells that was um, made into the hymn or the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And his poem says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then he begins talking about the fact that At the time, he wrote it on Christmas Day, 1863, during the Civil War. And he was thinking about peace on earth, goodwill to men, in light of everything that's going on, in light of all the suffering and the inhumanity that's taking place. He says, then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. What was happening was drowning out the idea of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But then he comes to a conclusion when he says, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, but peace on earth, goodwill to men. He's basically saying there's a lot of evil, a lot of suffering in this world, but it does not define God. It does not define the God who rules and reigns over it all. It does not indicate God's disposition toward the world. And that's what I want to close with, with just a thought about the whole idea of God's love. We've been talking about God's love in light of 1 Corinthians 13. But I want us to see as we close here the beauty of God's disposition of love toward a sinful world. Um, Because the reality is you can talk about God's name all day long. But if you don't believe he has a desire to be that for you, it rings hollow. It's something that doesn't mean a whole lot if he's going to be that only for himself, or if he's going to be that for other people, but he has no desire to be that for me. R.C. Sproul has a book called God's Love. And in that book, in a chapter entitled The Threefold Love of God, he says theologians historically have talked about three different uh, kinds of love or aspects of love. And he says the three loves that theologians talk about are the love of benevolence, the love of beneficence, and the love of complacency. And the love of complacency is the last one is the love of where God says, I take pleasure in you. Like he said to his son when he was baptized, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. It's the love of pleasure. The second one I mentioned is the love of doing good to people. 
It's not that you necessarily take pleasure in them. Uh, The Bible tells us to love our enemies, but it doesn't mean we take pleasure in them, especially if they're wicked and evil and doing bad things, hurting people, hurting us. We don't take pleasure in them, but we can still do them good. Where it talks about God sending rain on the just and the unjust. But the first one is the one that I want to highlight today when it says the love of benevolence, which means the love of desiring a person's good, having an attitude that really desires that person to be blessed, has a disposition that is ready and willing to help, ready and willing to bless. And R.C. Sproul would say the incarnation was an expression of the good will of God or the benevolence of God, the benevolent love of God. His benevolent love um, in the sense that Christ came into the world not only by the will of the Father, but also by the good will of the Father. That when we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating the fact that God has a disposition toward all men of desiring and wanting their good. And that as we communicate with people at Christmas time, we can actually communicate that reality. And the verse that R.C. highlights is, at least one of them, is John 3.16. He says, as we know, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So what is the point? The point isn't that God takes pleasure in every person. The point is that God desires the good of every person and does good to every person. God takes pleasure in his son and those who trust his son. It doesn't mean he takes pleasure in all people, but he actually desires the good of all and offers them reconciliation from the bottom of his heart. And so one of the things that's interesting is different in different ways people will talk about this and they'll say, um, like Ian Murray has written a book on Spurgeon and he talks about how Spurgeon would talk about the love of God and, and just in preaching the gospel to people in general. And Ian Murray says, if it were not that God is love... His presence could never become desirable to sinners. The gospel presents love as the attraction. Then he says, God so loved, quoting John 3.16. Then he quotes a Puritan named John Duncan, who said, Love is the great attraction. Without the sternness of holiness and justice, it would be the love of an unholy and unjust God. Yet the holiness and justice of God repel the sinner. And then he quotes Spurgeon, who said, None of us loves men as Christ loves them. He's talking about men in general. And if the love of all the tender-hearted in the world could run together, they would make but a drop compared with the ocean of compassion of Jesus. And then he says this, in talking about preaching the gospel and why people come to Christ. And it kind of is tied to the idea of beauty. We're attracted to beauty, not ugliness. Here he says, if anything can call faith into exercise, it is the knowledge that Christ is willing to receive thee. So what is the beauty of Christ? Full of grace and truth. I am willing to receive you. 
I'm able and willing to save you. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The beauty and the attractiveness of Jesus is that he, revealing the heart of the Father, the unseen heart of the Father to us, shows us a God with arms wide open saying, I am able and willing to save you. It says in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, God says, I do not delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn and live. And that's the first aspect of love that we need to realize is a very, very important part of Christmas. It's the important part of the message of Christmas, which is God is able and willing to save you through Jesus. He he is not um, holding you at arm's length. He's actually opening his arms to you. But the beauty and the glory of God is his willingness to reconcile sinners to himself. And that's the message we need to communicate. That's the message we need to believe, especially if we've never received that provision in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that the message of Christmas is a message for all people. It's a message that we can share with our family and friends who don't know you. It's a message that says God's disposition toward the world is one of come to me and be forgiven. Come to me and be saved. Come to me and be truly happy and satisfied. Turn from your sin. Trust in my son and you will be saved. You will not be disappointed. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has not yet done just that, turned from their sin and trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They have not seen the beauty of a God who is able and willing to save no matter our sin, no matter our failure, no matter our rebellion. They see the reality of that God this morning. And for those of us who've seen the beauty of God in the face of Christ, may we see that beauty in greater, deeper, richer ways And may we rejoice in a God so full of grace, so full of love, and may it cause us to be transformed more and more into his image so that we love like he loves in greater, deeper, richer ways. In Jesus' precious holy name we pray, amen.